Hello, and welcome to Gilead. Gilead is a queer storytelling bar church, and we are so glad you could join us. This month, our theme is dreams and oracles. We are talking about the mystical, mysterious side of our faith, letting your woo-woo show, and showing your literal and figurative dreams. We are talking about drinking blood. We are talking about witchy shit, and it's a spooky month, and we are so excited for you to join us. This past Sunday, October 1st, sabbatical pastor Ez was preaching about intuition, having this God leash, and, and talking about anger, and what we go through, and how our faith guides us. Listen now. So you get asked a lot in the process of becoming a pastor what your relationship with God is like. I've started telling people this. I'm a dog, maybe like an Irish, like a Irish point settler. Um, it's kept on a very short leash that God has the other end of. And sometimes I want to be let off my leash so I can go meet a friend or make a new friend with like untethered excitement. And that shit's cool. Sometimes I'm really afraid and just want to GTFO out of a situation. Sometimes I really, really, really just want to let loose on someone like so, so badly. Let someone have it. Anger is kind of unfortunately my modus operandus sometimes. That's why God keeps me on that short leash. There's a good reason. And when God does not want me to do something, I feel God tug. And I used to not say this, um, this part, but it is like an actual physical tug. Um, I feel it right here. I attribute it to God, um, and it sits right in the middle of my forehead, like there's a leash, and God's just yanking on it. And sometimes if it's dire enough, I feel it all the way down in my gut. It's only been dire enough to warrant a gut pull just once when I was 18 and totaled my car while making an improper right turn on a busy highway. It gave me a concussion, but not anything worse, which I was pretty lucky to have made it through, um, the first responders said. The rest of the time, though, the, leaf, the leash just lives up here. The God leash could be, could be a strange and powerful connection to the divine. It could also just be a keen sense of survival developed over years of complex trauma. Either way, I, I literally never told anybody about this feeling, this literal tug in my forehead, until I told my partner a couple of weeks ago. It felt like too strange and too mystical to articulate without sounding some kind of weird and like woo-woo, vibey-ass bitch kind of way. It's uh, what we might call an embodied epistemology, I guess. Um, a way of knowing that lives in my body, that lives in my being. It's helped me decide. It saved my life. The God leash for me is my form of divination that lives in my body. It is a way of knowing that I feel was more acceptable to kind of articulate again in the woo-woo, spirit-filled, charismatic, and evangelical circles that I used to belong to. To my present and, and reasonable, mostly mainline Protestant communities, which are steeped in the rationality of the Enlightenment, I just thought this would sound bonkers. But my dyed-in-the-wool fourth-generation Presbyterian partner affirmed the God leash. It wasn't that weird. Maybe it wasn't as bizarre as I thought it would be. So about two weeks ago, my partner was scanning groceries at Whole Foods uh, when my dickhead radar went uh, pinged. It's another instrument that I have developed from years spent running my mouth at bullies at Chatfield Elementary, no matter how big they were, mouthing off to irate middle school substitute choir teachers who could not play the piano as well as I could, and uh, calling my alma mater the hell out for its violent Title IX exemption. 
I'm not like a savant syndrome, like good at science and math kind of neurodivergent. Um, I'm a strong sense of justice and no filter kind of neurodivergent. It gets me into situations sometimes. This dickhead radar, the radar though, is another tool in my tool belt that has been formed out of survival in a hostile world. And this is what made it ping. She was a tall, rail thin, Petunia Dursley, other mother looking ass mom, standing with her two sons at one of the self-serve registers. And she had her hand clenched around one son's little wrist and got in his face and hissed, stop. Her other son was in tears. I stood frozen while my partner scanned our case of Miller High Life and I watched this woman slam her groceries against, on, against the scanner on her own checkout in what I assumed was anger at her children. My partner gathered his receipt, and as we walked out of the self-service area, I slowed when we passed this woman and her children. Both of her sons were crying now. She was back in their faces, and I could hear the threat in her low voice. And I was so ready, just ready to let, let loose on this woman about what happens to kids if you treat them like that. And if that's how she treats them in public, shit. How does she act at home? but I felt the tug right here. And I know calling out a dickhead parent in public can make things exponentially worse for kids at home. And I watched my partner retreating down the aisle. I listened to the lack of tug. I listened to the tug and I left. We were outside of the Whole Foods when I looked at Ross and I said, you know, I'm just gonna say something. And he said, that woman, I know, sounding maybe just as angry as I felt. Yeah, you know what? I said fully incensed, hot take, but maybe if you uh, don't have the distress tolerance skills to cope with your children misbehaving in public, maybe like just don't have kids, would save you the trouble, your kids the trouble, and also all the strangers who just watched you berate an eight-year-old in public the trouble. Jesus, how embarrassing. I think I would have done something if you weren't there. One time my partner wasn't there, and I piped up, even though it was not in my best interest to speak up. I was outside the Target in Hyde Park on 53rd talking with a friend of mine who holds the doors you walk in. And if you're a decent person, you know, you'll, you'll talk to him at least and, or ask him what he needs from inside or maybe give him cash. There's one day, though, he was out there collecting cash and I stopped to talk to him. And uh, outside collecting cash with him were two young men, barely older than I am, maybe a little bit younger, who had traveled from the destabilized country of Venezuela to our southern border and then were forced to Chicago the city vastly unready to handle its own crisis of unhoused people, let alone thousands more. And I was speaking to these young men through Google Translate on my phone, asking them for further information, where they were staying at Wadsworth, the second district, uh, if they had lawyers, etc. When this young man kind of walked up on the situation and he asked them, ignoring me, do you speak English? Do you speak English? When they responded back to him, no, if my hackles raised. This rhetoric is just so ungodly and familiar. And the young man looked at these two other young men and said, oh yeah? Then get a fucking job. The tug, oh, the tug. I waited for it, waited, but nothing. No further tug, go. You know they were like literally shipped here, I asked this young man. I didn't ask him if he also knew that migrants usually have to wait anywhere from 90 days to six months to receive a work permit in the United States. They literally could not get a job if they wanted to. You know that black people were shipped here, he responded. I took a beat. And both are fucking heinous, dude. 
I said. It didn't matter. He said, they're leaving trash in our neighborhoods. And I said, trash? And the young man was swearing audibly as he just got fed up and stormed away. And to be clear, this isn't a story in which the white queer checks the young black man for not being politically correct. That's fucked up. This is a complicated issue. The neighborhood of Woodlawn, which is south of my neighborhood of Hyde Park, where I'm just guessing this young man was from, um, is home to Venezuelan migrants living in the Wadsworth School, an old school. It used, Woodlawn used to be a white middle-class neighborhood until the Supreme Court outlawed these racist restrictive housing covenants and black families moved in. In fact, Lorraine Hansberry wrote A Raisin in the Sun based on her family's experiences of being one of the first black families to integrate the neighbor, neighborhood of Woodlawn. But the white families all moved out. Do you know that in the 80s and the 90s, the University of Chicago used to raise $10,000 a year to invest in the well-being of children in Woodlawn as the neighborhood declined? But they stopped in 1999 and started giving that money to their law students. Fucking gentrifying ass, oil and weapons manufacturing, money have an institution, can't even be bothered to give money back to the communities that it is cannibalizing. Go figure. Yeah, if this was my community that was impacted by violent institutionalized racism, economic abandonment, gentrification, and white flight, I would be as livid as he was in that moment. I cannot blame him for his anger and the way that he felt, only the way that he directed it. And as he walked away, I caught up with his pace. You know how queers got to go places fast. When he saw me, he swore at me again and insisted that I wasn't doing enough to manage the needs of these young men to whom he had been speaking. Which is like what I was doing when I was talking to them. Like I had bought them some shit to make sandwiches. But I asked him, as he called me, every gendered insult known to humankind, why is this a zero-sum game? I told him they had asked for a plane ticket to New York where they might have a better chance at life in the United States. Could he possibly help? I was called the C-word as he stormed off. This is not a tale of white saviorism in which I taught this dude the right way to feel his emotions about this aforementioned zero-sum game. Never said, why are you angry? I understand as much as I can. And I firmly believe that what I saw in this young man was just a trauma response. He was in fight mode. The sight of these people that he sees as scapegoats receiving really just a pitiful semblance of support his community goes without? Anger in an instant. There are probably more productive ways to manage your anger with the systems that press and crush you underfoot, whatever. But between this man and the woman, I'm increasingly seeing the reality of our world coming into the knowledge that we are in a fucking crucible of manufactured scarcity. We are punching down to cope with the reality of the material limitations imposed on us. We can't handle the overwhelming ache in our bodies anymore. This here, here and now, this is the age of fucking rage. And this is nothing new. This is absolutely nothing new. We see throughout the scripture of the Christian traditions these cycles of revolt and rest and revolt again. I called it the age of rage. But Abraham Joshua Heschel calls it specifically in the context of the prophet Jeremiah, the age of wrath. The people believed Jeremiah, I think, when he spoke, and that's why they hated him. 
Jeremiah, who was the son of a priest and a prophet himself, said that there's some fucked up shit going on. There was sin and transgression rotting the roots of the tree of his nation. There was no reform that could save the kingdom of Judah from the systems that its former kings had put in place, reaching out from the annals of history to wrap its hands around the throat of this holy people. He knew it. He knew in his body, and he had to say it, that the whole tree had to be uprooted, and it would be. Babylon was coming. Jerusalem would fall. The people who denied this impending reality would be scattered to the wind, but not before beating and imprisoning the man who spoke out against it. But this did not deter Jeremiah from his dual oracle and his protest. He could not even restrain himself, in fact. He says in Jeremiah chapter 20, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his names, then within me there is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Prophets like Jeremiah are unpopular because they know the power of naming injustice as it is. Bullshit. In Jeremiah's case, God's people had broken their covenant with God, and there would be consequences. Yeah, God was pissed. Jeremiah was pissed too. Naming that made the people pissed. It's an age of wrath indeed. We have been taught for the longest time to accept our reality as material and spiritual, its conditions as just the way that it is. But call it class consciousness, call it a revival, and I sure think you can if you want, and I hope you do. Call it what you want, but we are waking the hell up. We come face to face with the depravity of these systems that exploit our vulnerability and abuse our neighbor's vulnerability, whether they're from Woodlawn or Venezuela. Every time we take a trip to the grocery store, man, if you in this precise moment are not livid, I really need you to be. We cannot be a people who temper anger with responsibility. We have to see the long game. And oftentimes, our want to douse the anger people feel is just a means of maintaining the status quo. Anger can be uncomfortable to feel for some of us who have been taught that that is not an appropriate emotion for us to express. Some of us have really easy and somewhat unlimited access to our anger. Some of us need to be kept on a leash because our anger can be detrimental. Our anger at what we've suffered can cause others harm. Anger can be tempered, but it only can be tempered with the radical love of our neighbor for our neighbor. This is something that the people leading and participating in the civil rights movement of the past and present knew. Dr. Martin Luther, for Dr. Martin Luther King, his prophetic rage at the treatment of the poor and the oppressed in our country was inseparable from what he called strong, demanding love. Strong, demanding love. When we are angry at injustice, we are participating in building the future liberation that we dream about. Even if that dream sounds strange and a little out there and doesn't always make sense, radical love is not respectable to this world. Seeing communities and the people who compose them revoked of their personhood, it should make us angry. It should compel us to love. We should be moving along with our rage, knowing it is held in tandem with our love towards what people in power would call a fantasy, call it a pipe dream, but we have to call it liberation, call it the fulfillment of God's vision of the future. 
We should love people so much that we cannot stand to see them treated this way. And we cannot allow others to treat them this way. Because in case y'all didn't know it, this is not the way God intended us to live. We have literally enough, enough. No zero-sum game, no bullshit. And we should have had enough. But we cannot let our anger contribute to the heat of the crucible burning us out. We have to see at the heart of this kind of rage of the ages is a love for oneself and a love for one's community. Not all consuming and destructive, but this is that by which we move from survival into flourishing, rage tempered by love, held in tandem. We move from scarcity to abundance when we practice this. Y'all, this is how we tail, tear the veil from our eyes. Love and anger. That's how this world ends. That's how a new world is born.